So you saw that bumper video with uh, We Need to Talk, and this is the first message in our series, Wake Up Call. A wake up call is something that people say they have as a result of trauma. Something traumatic happens and like, boy, what a wake up call. But it's also a voice of warning before disaster. This message is is a series, this message series is going to be speaking about marriage in particular, but relationships in general. And so it's, it's, it's February, it's romance, it's Valentine's Day. I thought this is a great opportunity, great month to speak about relationships, to speak about marriages. The longer I'm pastor here, the more and more I hear assistant pastors and, and, and different people are, say, boy, marriages are hurting. And we smile and we live in silent unhappiness and we put on uh, the, our best face forward, but marriages are hurting in our community, in our world, and even in our church. So perhaps this would be a a wake-up call. See, I recognize that in a room like this, there are people in many different places. Some of you have been married for a very long time, and you've adjusted to living in your life with your spouse. For some of us, we're generally happy but we know that marriage isn't perfect and life isn't exactly what we thought when we dreamed that we stood at the altar to get married and it's not exactly worked out that way. Others, we've settled into silent unhappiness, which is interrupted by the occasional comment that's meant to jab at the person who mostly irritates you. And others are way beyond that point and life is full of continual arguments and nitpicking I recognize there are people here who are probably newly married, and that sounds like a pretty jaded, cynical view of marriage. But you don't have to be married very long to realize the person that you're living with is not the person you thought you married. Am I right? Some of you are panicked about that, thinking, what did I get myself into? Hoping that things could still turn around, but scared that they won't. I'd imagine there, I know that there are single people in here. Some of you are probably looking for a mate. Uh, some of you are like, never again will I have a mate. That's cool too. No matter where you are, um, can I just say, I, I believe this message series is for you because it's really about relationships, but specifically, we're going to focus on marriage. If you're not a Christian here today, we want to thank you for being here. I'm so excited that you're here. And I really do believe that this sermon series and this message in particular is going to have something helpful for you in your own marriage, in your own relationships. But I got to be honest with you, the passage we're going to look at today is addressed to Christians. So I think it's most beneficial, most helpful for those who are Christians in this room today. And while I think it's helpful for you, the thing that I think is the most important for you is to hear the message of Jesus that's woven through this message, the message of the gospel, the reason we believe what we believe. So if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Now, it's funny, I think some of you are like, wait a minute, I know some of those like keystone marriage passages in the Bible, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is not that. Can I just say that the Bible is not a manual on message. It's not an encyclopedia on, on marriage. It's not an encyclopedia for your marriage. The Bible is, is God's revelation of himself written through human history. It's a story of origins through destiny. And if we, I mean, there are certain passages that we are, that are certainly the marriage passages, the things that I recite at the very beginning of my marriage ceremony, a number of things that Paul says, things that happen in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are absolute marriage passages, but I want to come at this a little different 
Because the marriage passages in the Bible, hear me, the marriage passages in the Bible are not enough. They're not comprehensive. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying it's not a comprehensive view of marriage. They speak specifically to what Paul was dealing with. They speak specifically to those situations. It's not everything you need to know about marriage. But I will submit, since the Bible is the story of origins to destiny, that the Bible, all of it, speaks to, mess, to, to marriage. So we're looking at a passage that's not specifically about marriage, but it has a whole lot to do with your marriage. Just a little context about the passage before we get into it. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. It's one of the largest, most influential, most important cities in ancient Greece. It's known for its worship of the, the goddess Aphrodite, who's the goddess of love, beauty, and fertility. Corinth and the Corinthians, their culture valued wealth, beauty, and power, just like their idol. Now, Paul has exchanged letters back and forth, but in 2 Corinthians, we see him defending his apostleship to those who were considered the super apostles, to those who looked down on Paul as not being really mighty and superior, through those who elevated themselves as being greater. They infiltrated the church, and Paul is speaking to them because these super apostles actually appealed to the culture of Corinth, the culture that the Corinthian believers were living in and came out of and continued to live in in their Christian faith. They, were, they would appeal to wealth, beauty, and power, and influence. Paul's apostleship, he defends, is not like the apostleship of these other so-called super apostles. He talks about working in God's power, not his persuasive words. He talks about boasting in his weakness so that he can't boast, but God can boast, that God would be glorified. It's totally the opposite of that culture of that day, of that town. Today's passage, we see him reiterating the theme of this, this letter. The theme comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, but let me, 12 through 14, you don't have to turn there. Let me just read it to you because then you can see the similarity of what we read in chapter 5. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. We say with confidence and a clear conscience that we have lived with, God, with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all of our dealings. We have depended on God's grace, not our own human wisdom. That is how we have conducted ourselves before the world and especially towards you. Our letters have been straightforward and there's nothing written between the lines and nothing you can't understand. I hope Sunday you will fully understand us, even if you don't understand us now, that on that day when the Lord Jesus returns, you'll be proud of us the same way you are, uh, we are proud of you. So Paul talks about their relationship. Their relationship is strained in the very intro of this book. And he comes back around to it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 11. Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. We are commending ourselves to you again. Or are we commending ourselves to you again? No. We are giving you reason to be proud of us. So you can answer those who brag about having spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. That's spectacular ministry. That's the super apostles. If it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for us, for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who received his new life will no longer live for themselves. 
Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. You're probably wondering, like, okay, Jerome, you already admitted that this wasn't a text about marriage, but what does that have to do with anything? Well, let me just walk through the passage really quick. Verses 11 through 14, very, very, the very beginning of 14 at least, we see Paul saying that he understands that his ministry is God-given. It's a responsibility before God. He says, God knows that we are sincere. He's got my back. I hope you know that we're sincere, that you would have my back. As opposed to these, those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than a pure heart. He says, and, you know, it might sound like we're crazy. And if it sounds like we're crazy, then just know that it brings glory to God. Our craziness is, is glorifying God. But if it sounds like we're in our right mind, know that it's for your benefit. Either way, it's not for Paul's benefit. It's for God and it's for them. That's Paul's ministry as an apostle for God and for them, not for self. What's his motivation for their benefit and for God? The very beginning of 14a, therefore Christ's love controls us. It's the love of Christ that motivates Paul to do what he does. Look at me with verse 14 through 15. Here Paul explains the implications of Christ's death. Christ died, all have died to our old life. And those who believe are given a new life. Let me read verse 15 to you. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ. We have passages like this in scripture that are very similar. Romans chapter six, verse four. For we died and we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Again, you're thinking, okay, Jerome, why are we in this passage? What are we doing here? This verse deals with salvation. This is a theological text. It's not a relationship text. This has nothing to do with marriage, much less any kind of relationship. This is, we've died with Christ. We're raised to new life. This is understanding of my salvation. Why are we here? Take a look at verse 15 again. We see a contrast between the old life and the new life. Those who believe are given a new life in order to do what? Live for Christ. Because we have died to the old life and no longer live for self. No longer live to the self. The death that Paul is talking about is a death to self, a death to sin, the flesh, the old life. Remember, Paul is speaking to a church of vanity, a church with believers who are still enslaved to self. Yes, they've been rescued from sin. They're no longer slaves to sin, but they're definitely slaves to self. Their default setting, as is ours, is sin and selfishness. See, Christ's death is more than just punching your ticket to go to heaven. It's designed to change the way we live in the here and now. And in a culture like Corinth that valued self-promotion, self-fulfillment, self-indulgent, Someone who lives for Christ is going to stand out. And he's calling them and he's urging them to stand out by not living like everybody else in their culture to live for Christ and not for self. One commentator said this, those who live for Christ and give up their own rights for the good of others 
Do those who live for Christ and give up their own rights for the good of others, and they do not insist on having their own way, give up your rights for the good of others and do not insist on having your own way? Some of you are going, oh, I think I know where Jerome's going with this. Maybe this is a relationship passage after all. Dying to self, not insisting on your own way. See, I look at a passage like this and I think we are Corinthians. I mean, there are striking similarities between our culture, 2021, Hamilton County, Indiana, or just the USA in general, and, the, and, and Corinth. There's some great similarities there. But regardless of any time or place, socioeconomic status, the human heart has similarities to those in Corinth is that we are born into sin. We are slaves to sin in need of rescue. As Christians, we've been rescued from the slavery to sin and brought into God's kingdom, yet on a day-to-day level, we can easily still live for our own kingdom. Surely not, I'm not the only one. I know I didn't get an amen for that because nobody really wants to admit that. But everyone in this room who believes what the Bible says knows it's true of you and you. The problem is we don't really sometimes believe it's true of ourselves. We are no longer slaves to sin, but yet we still sin. We have not arrived. We are still being transformed into the image of Christ. We are saints who sin. We are saints because of Christ's righteousness, which has been given to us. We get his credit, but yet we still have a sin issue. And we need God's grace. We need rescue. Not just the day that we became Christians. We need rescue every single day. We need grace every single day, just like we did when we first believed. And the moment we forget that, then we are absolutely living for the kingdom of self, sitting on the throne of the kingdom of self. The old life was living for themselves. The old life was living for self. It's selfishness. And I don't know if you know this, but selfishness is really a problem in your marriage. It's not going to do good things for your marriage. Does somebody have a testimony of how selfishness has blessed your marriage? I'd give you the microphone right now. Let me hear it. It's problematic. If there's one thing I want you to get from this entire message, it's this, that your marriage's biggest problem is that you are a sinner married to a sinner. And if you're not married, your future marriage's biggest problem will be that you are a sinner married to a sinner. And if you look back on the marriage you used to have, wondering what happened, you were a sinner married to a sinner. That's the biggest problem. You both bring something into your marriage that is destructive to your marriage, and that is sin. Let's talk about sin and marriage. Just our sinful state of who we are. The moment we were born... I say this in premarital counseling. Um, I say I don't believe in marriage problems. I, I believe in people have problems. We're born with problems. But then we have complicated problems because of other issues. But we bring our problems to our marriage, and that's what creates marital problems. If we can, I don't want to get ahead of myself, we can work on ourselves and grow in health and grow in the likeness of Christ, then we see marriage is strengthened not because you're working on the actual marriage, but you're working on the, those who are involved and engaged in that marriage. Let's talk about sin. Sin is, first of all, self, selfish. Sin places you on the throne of your kingdom. Your kingdom's focus, your kingdom's motivation, your kingdom's concern is shrunk down 
to your wants, your needs, and your feelings. One author said this, sin causes us to be offended by most offenses against us and, is, and to be concerned most for what concerns us. It's about us. It's about me. You know what sin does in your marriage? It, it makes you antisocial, which sounds crazy because you're like, wait a minute, I, I'm living in a house with a bunch of people. How am I antisocial? You're really antisocial because if you're serving your kingdom, if you're sitting on the throne of your kingdom because you're inherently selfish, you don't have time to love your spouse because you're too busy loving yourself. And what you really want is for your spouse to love you the way you love yourself. And if they do that, then you're going to have a happy marriage. The problem is your spouse feels the same way. And some of you are like, wait a minute, I love my spouse, Jerome. I, I don't question that. In general, I love my spouse, but I, I, I certainly live and interact in a selfish way or, or actually, well, let's talk about it this way. If you define love as affection, if you define love as attraction, then, then sure, a lot of people love their spouse. But do you know that your selfish desires can produce attraction and affection? That's the kind of trophy wife I need. That's the kind of husband I want to pay the bill. I mean, there's just different things of what, what, what really serves your kingdom best. Maybe that spouse is, and so you feel an affection towards them. But I'm talking about love is defined by selfish or selflessness and sacrifice. If we're too busy loving ourselves, we don't love our wife or our, our spouse the way we should. Sin also dehumanizes the people in your life, including your spouse. The person you once found joy in just for being them, your eyes were really big and your heart fluttered, now becomes that person who most irritates you. They become vehicles. One of two things happens. Your spouse can quickly become a vehicle by which you get what you want, or they become the obstacle to getting what you want. But either option is a problem for your marriage. Think about it. If you are, if, if your spouse, let me just use it this way. If, if your wife is meeting your demands, your wants, your needs, your feelings, then you're quite excited about your wife and you're going to feel an affection towards your wife and you're going to show that affection. But when, when, when your wife becomes the obstacle to your wants and your feelings, you'll have a hard time hiding your disappointment and your impatience and your irritation. See, our sin and selfishness cause us to evaluate our spouses according to the laws of our kingdom and not the laws of God's kingdom. How many of you get angry at your spouse because they violate a law of God? Not, I, I get angry at my spouse when she violates the law of Jerome. And I know you think like, well, that's the pastor on some sort. Every one of us has that same power trip. Should it be the other way around? Should I be grieved when my wife violates God's law? Should I be more concerned about that than when she violates my law and my kingdom? Your, marriage, your marriage's biggest problem is that you are a sinner married to a sinner. 
A sinner married to sinner means you have a battle of kingdoms in your marriage. There's your kingdom, there's their kingdom, and there's God's kingdom. If you're a Christian and you say, God, have your way in me, like the song we just sang this morning, there's God's kingdom. How does God's word shape your reactions to one another? How do you carry your cross in your marriage? See, God's grace exposes and frees you from your bondage to yourself. It's a competing kingdom. Your marriage's biggest problem is that you are a sinner married to a sinner. So what do we do, Jerome? What now? First thing I would say, and I'm gonna actually give you these notes in reverse order. First of all, don't panic when the dreams that you've had for your marriage die. Don't hit the panic button. Don't freak out because when the dreams that you brought into your marriage die, it may just be the death of your own selfish desires, the death of your own selfish dreams for your marriage. It may be the death of your kingdom and maybe the opportunity for God to do something better. Do you guys remember that series before we started gathering together again in person? I think it had been in the month of May of 2020. We called it, it was called Ecclesia. It was about coming back together as church. And we have like expectations that are maybe unrealistic. And we all missed each other because we were separated and, and, and at home. But then we had a chance to meet together again. I said, when we meet together, we're gonna bump into each other. We're gonna, we're gonna step on each other's toes. We're gonna irritate one another. Be prepared for that because God's put us together. I remember my point that I applied to us back then, it still applies to us today. Back then it was the ugly side of church as an opportunity for your growth and for God's glory. But the ugly side of marriage is also an opportunity for your growth and God's glory. See, the troubles that you face in your marriage may not be a failure of God's grace. It may be the grace of God towards you. I think God may be able to do something better when our dreams die. Maybe our marriage becomes a place of sturdy unity and understanding and love. Second thing I would say is this, it's remember that you're married to a sinner and before you amen too much, I'm gonna to get to you in a second. You aren't married to someone who's perfect. You know that theologically, you know that as a believer, you know we're born into sin. But yet when we get married, it's funny how shocked we are that we're married to somebody who's selfish. It's funny how shocked and disillusioned we can become when we realize that our spouse is a sinner. We discovered something, but we already knew it coming in. If you remember that you are married to somebody who is a sinner, someone who is not perfect, then you can, you can become an instrument of grace. Unfortunately, I think many of us opt to be instruments of judgment and instruments of critique and instruments of punishment. You can opt to be an instrument of grace. God's loving transformational grace extended through you because your, your spouse is still in process. 
One of the things that's, that's beautiful to remember when you think about your spouse being a sinner is it actually makes the conflict that happens, the problems and the troubles in your marriage, it makes it a little bit easier to handle because you realize that the problems and the troubles in your marriage are not really personal. They're not necessarily intentional. They're just an overflow of being married to someone who's a sinner. The problems in your marriage being a result of the sin, weakness, and failure of your spouse. But I said, we're going to get to you too. If we ignore this fact and take it personal, if we forget that our spouse is a sinner who fails, if we have no grace, then everything that they do will become personal. And if it becomes personal, then you become adversarial. And when you become adversarial, you escalate the problem. It's not good for the marriage. But things change when we see our spouses the way God sees them. When we see them the way the Bible says that they are, rescued sinners who are still becoming. When you see your spouse the way God sees them, when you see your spouse the way the Bible says they are, or your future spouse, you can take those moments which would normally lead to anger and they become moments of ministry. One of my favorite definitions of grace is, grace is the face that love wears when it meets imperfection. I use that quote a lot when I talk about loving one another within the walls of this church and those out in the world. Isn't it funny how we can apply that to one another and to the world, but forget that when it comes to the person we share a bed with? And lastly, remember, and you knew this was coming, remember that you're not perfect. This should absolutely humble you. Once again, it's one of those things theologically we know. But we hate to admit it. We're usually just right in our eyes. We, we don't mind being in need of rescue when it comes to Jesus, but to be imperfect in need of rescue when it comes to my spouse, we really kind of push back on that. Can I say, when we grasp that we are not perfect, when we really understand our state, what the Bible says about us, sinners in need of rescue, when it really humbles us, it's going to strengthen your marriage. Someone come up here and give me a testimony on when humility has hurt your marriage. You can't. So here's what I'd say in, in lines of remembering that you're not perfect. Have a healthy distrust for your own righteousness. Be the first to question your own virtue. And I'm actually, in, when I wrote those, I was thinking of a situation of like an argument there's a, a book called Love and Respect by a guy named Emerson Egerich, and uh, he takes Ephesians chapter 5, 33. Let me read it to you. So again, I say to each, this is Paul. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. He takes that, love your wife, respect your husband, and he builds this whole book off of it, which is really profound because it's, I tell you what, in my own marriage, it's been profound. Because I've never looked at Heather and said, you don't love me. <laughs> But I know when she's disrespectful and it stings me. And I, my, my response to her is not disrespect. My, my response to her is kind of unlovingness. And so, incredibly practical book. But he talks about this crazy cycle that takes place that when a spouse, when a, when a wife is disrespectful to the husband, the husband responds with unlovingness to which the wife responds to disrespect. 
and unlovingness, and it's a circle, and he calls it the crazy cycle, and it's back and forth like a tennis match. Boop, 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 you know? He says, someone's got to be the first to break the cycle. Someone's got to be the first to put an end to it. Otherwise, it continues to cycle. If you're willing to question your virtue, that you may not be right, and even if you are right, that you don't need to be righteous about it, then you can stop the crazy cycle. I think a lot of us get into marriage with hopes and dreams of happily ever after. And many of us know that's a myth, but yet we still kind of desire and long for it. And happiness, can I say this? Happiness is not a bad goal for your marriage. I think God wants us to enjoy our homes and our marriage. I just think that happiness is too small of a goal. God wants to transform you. God wants to transform your spouse. And I believe that he's given us marriage not so much to make us happy, but to make us holy, to transform us, to set us apart. See, reconciliation in your marriage begins when you first reconcile with God. When you begin to pray, a prayer that goes against everything, your old self, your sinful, selfish nature would want to pray. When you actually pray, your kingdom come, your will be done right here, right now, in this marriage, as it is in heaven. I started the service after we sang that song. I said, the reason we gather here today and the reason we gather each week is to be reminded of our great need of grace and rescue and to be reminded that we've received grace and we've been rescued. There's humility and there's joy and gratitude. I believe uh, we do that every week. At least we should. There's something else we do and when we talk about remembering that you're, you're married to a sinner, that you are a sinner, I think it's the perfect intro into our communion time. So if you have your communion elements, we're going to do that at this time.